Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Frankie Graziano. Advocates calling for rent caps and better protections against evictions, as well as more low-income housing for residents of a variety of economic backgrounds and circumstances. This is what we're talking about this hour. This is Where We Live. And if you're listening to the conversation right now, call in. Give us a call and, and maybe a comment today as well if we're not able to get you on the air. Are you seeing enough affordable housing where you live? The number to call, 888-720-9677, 888-720-WNPR. Or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. My guests this hour joining me via Zoom are Jackie Rabe Thomas, the great investigative reporter for Hearst Media and uh, CT Insider, obviously. Christine Stewart joins us as well. She's the editor-in-chief of CT News Junkie and editorial director of the Mortgage News Network. And finally, Ginny Monk, who covers children's issues and housing for the Connecticut Mirror. Christine, I want to start with you this hour. Simply, uh, if you can, can you just help me understand why rent's so high nowadays? Uh, well, rent is so high and, and housing is unaffordable. Um, you know, rent is so high because there's uh, a lack of units being built. And, you know, we're in the Northeast, we're in Connecticut. Um, there's actually only 3,600 homes for sale right now in Connecticut. And that's down, I don't know, 75%. In 2017, it was 17,000 uh, homes were for sale in the state. And so um, rental prices are up 20 to 30%. Um, you know, home builders have, have been unable to build and it is, uh, you know, and, you know, rent, as far as rent is concerned, um, landlords are still a little bit, um, you know, trigger shy in filling some of the units they, they do have because of um, the the problems that they had uh, evicting people um, during the pandemic. And then, you know, n- making sure that whoever they get into those those units uh, in the future um, do have good credit and are are able to pay. Ginny Monk, housing reporter for the Connecticut Mirror. Ginny, why can't people pay rent right now? Yeah, I mean, I think the answer varies sort of from person to person. Um, but uh, as Christine mentioned, we've seen rents increase and wages have not increased at the same rate. And for many families uh, I speak to, you know, just, just one emergency can really put them behind on their bills. Um, it just gets tough to pay when, when life happens. I want to talk to you about your coverage in a second, but just more generally, what are the ramifications of eviction? What do people go through when they're evicted? Can you just uh, give me an understanding of that, please? Yeah, so evictions have really wide-ranging effects on people's lives. Uh, It can affect health. It affects uh, your sense of community. It it can separate families. um, It disrupts kids' education. There's really 
a lot of parts of life that an eviction affects. When people get an eviction, as I understand it, they get a notice to quit. So that's kind of the story that uh, Ginny recently put together at ctmirror.org. Uh, and uh, and one of the parts I understand it was eviction surging and, and children often paying the price. And there's this great scene that you uh, paint off the jump where you take us into a West Haven storage unit with this mother and son, this mother and son that now don't live together. Can you tell us about Tanya and Dexter, please? Yeah, so, so Tanya and Dexter uh, received their eviction notice um, several months ago and, and had a lot of trouble finding a new place, in part because it's hard to find a new apartment once there's an eviction on your record. Um, they've sort of jumped from different hotels, uh, you know, even staying in their U-Haul one night, uh, and, and now they, they haven't seen each other for weeks because Dexter is staying with Tanya's mother, and, and she's sort of uh, couch surfing, staying at shelters. And then in, in looking at this article, I mean, by the time you get to the end of it, you have a, a 15-year-old uh, young man that's really uh, come of age uh, at such a young age saying that uh, he's, he's grown to keep his expectations low and his vibrations high. What does that mean to you, Ginny? Yeah, so Dexter is a really uh, positive kid, but he's been through a trauma, and it's one he doesn't really want to talk to his friends about. He he feels some shame around speaking to his friends about this issue. Um, I, I think living in the different motels sort of affected him. They they got bed bugs once, and he sort of learned that, you know, if you don't expect too much out of the new place you're staying, maybe you won't be disappointed. Evictions seem to be uh, very high right now. We're understanding that the eviction moratorium ended last year that was there for COVID to make sure that, uh, A, that people would have housing at a time where uh, people don't have money, and then, B, that the shelters don't become over, uh, don't overflow, and then you have the uh, COVID situation. So as I understand it now, the evictions have poured in. Are, are we seeing sort of, a, of an eviction tsunami, Jackie? Yeah, evictions are up um, back to pre-pandemic levels. Um, they're actually exceeding um, those filings a bit. Um, and just to sort of put that in context, in Hartford in December, there were 200 filings of people, just over 200 people who were told they need to leave their home. And so that's having a real impact on families and communities um, who are now having to leave in this hot housing market where vacancy rates are the lowest in the country here in Connecticut. Um, so there's really just few places for people to move to and what places are available, the rent is sky high now. Ginny, the evictions are, are at a much higher point than they were in 2019? Yes, they are. Um, we sort of saw with the end of eviction protections, um, evictions going up and by eviction protections, I mean both the moratorium and uh, as Unite CT stopped taking applications, we saw more people getting evicted. I, I think it's important to note here that one eviction filing can affect lots of people. So a filing is for a household. So you can see that affect parents, kids, sometimes grandparents living in the home. It, it's more than one person per filing. 
I want to talk to you more about the children that are impacted about this. There's a devastating anecdote in your story that I was talking about earlier uh, where a young uh, woman, I believe her name is Layla, I believe she's only seven years old, eight years old, uh, worries about rats scurrying across her, her floor and where she's going to play with her toys and things like that or where she's going to sleep because of the conditions. This is just having an, an impact on children like uh, like we, we, we haven't seen and now we understand what, what mental health is. I guess I should circle back to that question, Ginny. The, the impact on, on children, I guess, and, and the ramifications long term. Yeah. Uh, so something we know from research into evictions is that families with children are more likely to face evictions uh, for, for several reasons. And that can have really a lot of impacts on kids, both in the immediate and in long term. I, I spoke to some folks who had been evicted as kids and they still reported uh, sort of emotional problems, uh, worries over housing that continued even once their finances stabilized, um, trouble unpacking in apartments because they had this lingering fear in their head that they were going to have to leave again. In your story, you talk about there's like a sidebar there that says hey, you've been evicted or you've gotten the notice. What What's next? You've gotten the notice. What's next? Uh, just to, just tell us about that process really quickly, if you can. Yeah, so the, the goal of the sidebars was to sort of provide uh, news you can use, some easy information um, for people who are facing eviction. And there are a few resources, including folks can, t- can call 211. Um, for a time, the city of New Haven had a rental assistance program, and then Connecticut notably has a right to counsel program that provides legal assistance to people facing eviction in a few of the state's uh, zip codes with the highest numbers of evictions. Christine, can you jump in and talk about right to counsel? That's something that was created a couple of years ago by the legislature. Why, why was that an important thing, and, and what's it done so far? Yeah, so um, they had a really successful year at the first year uh, of right to counsel. And so, you know, mo- most people who are in this uh, eviction um, process don't have um, don't have the resources to to hire anyone to represent them in the, these hearings. And so um, the Connecticut um Bar Foundation um, released uh, a report earlier this month that found 76% of cases where clients received this representation from the program were able to avoid uh, an eviction. Um, so it's really important to be able to have counsel at your side in, in order to um, uh, to get this to get this done and avoid um, the trauma that these evictions cause. Jackie, I, I want to talk about the resources a little more. Two one one. It always worries me to talk about two one one for my time in, in covering uh, the hurricane in Puerto Rico. And then when people came over here and they were trying to get resources, and they had they didn't have a lot of success with two one one forever, whatever reason, might have been that they spoke Spanish and and they didn't have somebody available to talk to them at that point, or there was some kind of language barrier, whatever it was. Two one one. Uh, some people have horror stories about. So just uh, just just help me understand. Not necessarily talking about vouchers because we're going to talk about that in the next segment. But what what kind of resources are available to people? Yeah. So um, housing is not a right, a constitutional right in Connecticut, and so um, they two on one really uses a sort of a triage approach of um, those who are imminently homeless 
um, you know, someone who doesn't have a bed to sleep in that night or the next night. Um, but people who are living in hotels or motels um, aren't considered homeless by the state standards um, to be sort of fast tracked for help. And so um, two on one is a, a frustration point for a lot of people who call there for housing um, help, which is one of their um, number one calls that two on one receives is for housing supports. And so um, you, what you see is people who are waiting, waiting, waiting for services. And you see that filter out into other parts of the, um, the spectrum as well for things like vouchers, things like, um, you know, other subsidized housing programs. There's really long wait lists. Um, I would say the same thing kind of shows up in schools as well. Um, there's the McKinney-Vento Act that requires students to be identified um, but again, they're identified, they're directed to services, um, but there's a shortage of services available for people who actually need them. And so, um, you know, last year, last school year, there were 4,000 students who were identified as homeless. Um, 600 of those kids were living in shelters on any given day. And so um, those students weren't necessarily fast-tracked for services in their communities through two-on-one. Jackie got that data ahead of the show. I appreciate that so much, Jackie. And I, and I miss working with you. You work with, uh, with Hearst now and CT Insider. So you just got uh, to my heart with your, your, uh, your, your always working and always be journalist, journalistically uh, inclined uh, work here. Just, uh, just back to something you were talking about with calling 211 and terms that they use. Ginny, there's a, there's a term. What is it? Is it, is it literally homeless or actually homeless? And could you just spell that out? Yeah, so the term literally homeless typically means people who are staying in shelters or on the streets, and it often doesn't include folks who are, uh, like Jackie said, living at hotels or motels or um, who are couch surfing, uh, which means kind of just crashing on a relative's couch because you don't have anywhere else to go. I just wanted to point out something that somebody said on Twitter. We had somebody, Kathy, on Twitter say that the lack of affordable housing combined with voluntary services and supports contributes to delays in discharges from state-operated inpatient psychiatric facilities, the average length of stay more than three years, lack of affordable housing combined with voluntary services and supports contributes to delays in discharges from state-operated inpatient psychiatric facilities. So thank you so much uh, for that comment. And I just wanted to to also take a a call at this hour. We have a call uh, coming in from New Haven with the Blake Street Tenants Unit. This is Jessica Stamp. Hi, can you hear me okay? Yes, go ahead, Jessica. Okay, so my name is Jessica Stamp. I'm a leader with the Blake Street Tenants Unit in New Haven. Um, I've personally been looking for um, affordable housing. I'm a teacher, I'm a member of the labor union. I work for the state of Connecticut. So you think that someone in my position would be able to find affordable housing but I can't. It's out of my price range, and the uh, rent hikes are outpacing the wage increases, so I can't follow the one-third rule. And my landlord, um, he has 70 units in my complex, 30 of which are vacant, that he is currently, quote-unquote, renovating um, so he can hike up the rents by between 68% to 72%. Um, and so he is essentially reducing uh, what is the affordable housing stock? And he's also making sure he can, um, that no one from Section 8 can get an apartment there because he's increasing the rent so high. And we do have many Section 8 tenants right now. 
Jessica, um, thank you so much for your comment. I appreciate you calling, and I'm, I'm hoping that uh, you're able to get connected to, to the housing that you want soon. Thanks. Thank you, and take care, Jessica. I, I, I now I now pivot to, to, to Ginny on this one. There's a lot in there uh, about the this dynamic between landlords and, and tenants, and a lot of the complaints right now are that, you know, you might hear a landlord say that, that tenants might be withholding rent, and then on the other side, you might hear something about what she was just talking about with Section 8 or no-fault evictions. Can you just get into that uh, dynamic and, and, and highlight whatever you think is important there? Certainly. So it's definitely a complicated relationship, and, and a lot of landlords had a hard time during the pandemic as they weren't receiving rent and, and sort of waiting on um, Unite CT funds to come through. There's also this sort of uh, power dynamic that, that folks talk about a lot, um, where, you know, one party has sort of control of the housing that another party really needs uh, to have a good life. And and that, you know, that makes it complicated when, when the tenant is, you know, trying to find a place to live and the landlord is running a business. What's happening with landlords, Christine? Just uh, I understand there's a there's a lobby at the Capitol that shows up. I don't know if we call them lobby or not. I'm always I'm always uh, using these terms uh, loosely. But the Connecticut Coalition of Landlords. What what are landlords saying about what they've gone through in, in COVID and and uh, the eviction moratorium coming up? Things like that. What are landlords saying? I think that there's um, there's a, a misconception of the landlord as this sort of, you know, monopoly guy in the top hat and that he's very wealthy. Most of the landlords um, in the state of Connecticut own fewer than 10 units and, and most own, you know, fewer than, than five units. So these are, are not, you know, wealthy um, millionaires by, by any sense of the, the imagination. So the, these are small business owners who, you know, who have this property, who, um, you know, in order to keep this property, in order to pay the tax taxes, in order to pay the mortgage, need to charge a certain amount um, for the rent. And because they, um, during the pandemic, they weren't immediately being paid by um, the Unite CT program. And so they weren't receiving the funds that they needed to then in turn pay and make sure that their business was operating. Um, that they felt that it was better for them to leave some of these units empty um, and not fill them because they didn't know what was going to happen or, or, you know, what kind of tenant was going to move in and were they actually going to be able to collect on the rent. Um, and so, you know, their their percentages, um, you know, are, are, are very high. I mean, there's not it's not a huge profit margin. Um, that they're making, and they feel like lawmakers sometimes forget that. You're talking about small landlords there, and shout out to the New Haven uh, Independent, our friends over there, Tom Thomas Breen and uh, Paul Bass, for the work that they do. If you want to talk about uh, this dynamic and, and something, they get so granular into this coverage that they're actually covering individual cases, and there's just a great story about uh, this tenant and this small landlord that the small landlord's been there since 1978 or something like that. It's a really good case study in what's going on here. We're going to take a break in a second, but before we do, I just want to get a caller in here uh, with Tea Leaf Realty, uh, and this is out of West Hartford. This is Rob. 
Rob, why don't you why don't you make your comment here? Thank you for joining us on Where We Live. Perfect. Thanks for having me. Uh, one one thing we're seeing right now is uh, a consolidation of families, and what I mean by that is younger adults are staying at home, uh, and sometimes parents are charging rent. And then the other thing we're seeing is single moms actually doubling up in a two bedroom, two bath kind of home, uh, and this is making it more affordable for people who can't find affordable housing to live. Anybody with a real quick comment on that? Thank you, Rob. Have a nice day. Anybody with a real quick comment on that before we go to break? I I have a comment about Kathy's comment earlier um, about the impact on institutions of evictions. Um, some research from Yale that was released on emergency room visits it shows that um, forced evictions lead to to an increase in emergency room visits because of PTSD. So I just um, would like to add that. The ramifications of eviction and really a, a, a tough housing market all around. Thank you for that comment, Jackie Rabe Thomas of CT Insider. Folks, if you're listening, just like Rob did, you can join the conversation, 888-720-9677. Or you can find us on Twitter, like Kathy did, at Where We Live. Stay tuned. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. You're listening to Where We Live. This is Frankie Graziano. Thank you for joining us this morning. We're going to talk about housing vouchers and ways that people can get connected to housing in a moment. Just wanted to finish up that talk we just had on the rental market and ways that uh, the lawmakers in Connecticut may address the rental market this legislative session. I can't believe we didn't talk about this in the first segment, Christine. Tell me about uh, what the what the proposal here. It looks like uh, lawmakers in New Haven introduced legislation that would put a cap on rent. Yeah, so that's a really interesting proposal. Um, there there are some proposals floating around the legislature to to cap rents. Now, um, the National Association of Home Builders told lawmakers earlier this month that capping rents actually cuts down on the number of rental units that are available and the number of rental units that, you know, could possibly be 
um, constructed. And, and so I, I think that, um, you know, going back to the, the New Haven Independent, they have a really good story up here today, um, that basically it, it cost the city, um, $690,000, which is roughly $246 per square foot. Um, to, you know, to build housing. Um, and so at that, at that amount, um, you're spending that much to, to build a number of affordable housing units. Those units are, are not going to in turn be affordable, um, you know, be, because obviously you have to, you have to pay, um, somebody has to pay a mortgage on that and somebody has to get investment for that. Um, and while it might be um, easy easy for um, a developer to, to get the money to, to build, it's going to be a lot harder um, to, um, to mortgage that. Tenants uh, talking about a, a rental cap of maybe about 3% they've been, they've been throwing out there. There's been a big movement in recent years called cap the rent. But uh, the lawmakers in this bill are talking about a two and a half percent cap. So, so I guess it would be even better from a tenant's perspective if that were to go through, two point five percent. That means that you could only go up on rent every year two point five percent. Ginny uh, also at the in Hartford this legislative session, no fault evictions as I understand it. Just to close the loop on that conversation we had uh, last uh, last segment. It sounds like Gary Winfield and, and Robin Porter, who are these New Haven lawmakers that came up with this housing bill, they also want to codify no-fault evictions, some kind of some kind of protection against no-fault evictions into law. Correct. So uh, no-fault evictions typically occur when a lease expires and uh, for whatever reason a, a landlord wants a tenant out. So these are evictions that occur when the tenant has not broken the lease and when they are caught up on rent. Um, certain groups in Connecticut are already protected against these uh, senior citizens, people with certain disabilities. Uh, and, and we're sort of seeing a movement uh, with folks wanting to expand those protections uh, to more groups of people. Thank you so much for, for commenting on what's going to be done this legislative session in Hartford and Still talking about the rental uh, rental market, but moving on to a, a different theme here. The work of journalism by my friend and old colleague, Jackie Rabe Thomas, is sparking some action in Hartford. Recently put this together for CT Insider, why half of affordable housing vouchers in Connecticut go unused, a slamming door in my face. Housing vouchers before the pandemic, it seemed like they, they, they weren't being used, but not to the degree to which they are now at this point. How's the situation looking, Jackie? Yeah, so um, before the hot housing market, about one out of every three vouchers were um, going unused, uh, meaning someone wins a voucher, they wait on the waiting list for years, um, typically, and they are unable to use it. Um, and, and during this hot housing market, half of the vouchers are now going unused, meaning um, people, a lot of people are, are, are have false hope. You know, they're, they're really excited. I heard a lot of stories from people where they're really excited that they're going to finally get some help paying their rent, um, and not be house poor, um, be able to afford, you know, those medical bills or that dental visit they've been putting off for a while. Um, but then they're not able to find anywhere to actually use that voucher. Um, 
And what the investigation that we did found was there's just a host of reasons um, in, in some municipalities more than others. Um, you know, in Bristol, the woman who I followed around, Larice Harvey, um, only two thirds of the vouchers are going unused there. Um, and there's several towns just like that. And, and what you find when you look at places like that is they don't, um, the housing authorities in those municipalities don't allow people to use those vouchers outside of their municipality. And so um, in, a, in a market where you already have a hot housing market, they're now shrinking the market to the confines of one local municipality. Um, and, you know, there's, there's when people are allowed to move to another housing authority or a different um, community, the amount of their vouchers not posted anywhere. So they can't figure out just how much they have to spend in those other municipalities. And then they have to get permission from the housing, each housing authority, where you're leaving, where you're going. And there's just a lot of red tape that's standing in the way. We're going to get into the local role in all of this and, and the role that municipalities play in affordable housing and, 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 and maybe even zoning as well. But I want to underscore when you're talking about unused vouchers, the story you're talking about uh, out of out of Bristol, this person wins the lottery, as you cover in your story, they get a housing voucher. Right. Like so. So ding, 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 ding. Winner there. But no, it just doesn't come to be at the end with with getting housing. I just want to underscore that, Jackie. Yeah. You know, every step of the way that Larice tried to find a place, um, she was told she couldn't use it. Um, you know, in Connecticut, it's illegal to tell someone they won't accept a voucher um, because state law says you can't discriminate based on how you plan to pay with a legal source of income. Um, which is a housing voucher is a legal way to pay rent, just as SSI is. Um, and so um, some folks are still doing that. But but what she found, and more often in her case, were people not willing to um, rent to be able to sort of look at the whole market. You know, she would find a place closer to where she grew up in New Britain or where she wanted to live in other parts of the state. And she was just told no again and again and again she can't use her voucher there a couple of democratic lawmakers including senator looney martin looney and jason rojas a, a state representative they are talking about specifically addressing some of the things that you covered in the article what can you tell me about uh any kind of proposal we're seeing in hartford yeah so um rojas and um the senate majority leader and the um, sorry, the Senate President Pro Tem and the House Majority Leader, um, they both uh, want to see a statewide or a regional wait list for vouchers. Um, Massachusetts has done this. They did it following um, a lawsuit that forced them to do it. Um, Connecticut's also facing a lawsuit in how it, it um, administers its voucher program, um, or sorry, not a lawsuit, but a complaint with HUD that's been pending for years. Um, and so there's really um, some forced change that could be happening um, or trying to get out ahead of it. But there's also um, proposals to require, you know, more simple things like requiring housing authorities to post how much their voucher is actually worth. So when someone is able to move to their municipality, um, someone knows how much they have to spend on with their voucher um, because vouchers change the value depending on the market that you're in. Um, and, and also that the rules of how you are able to use a voucher in that community also be posted. 
And so, um, you know, I wouldn't bet against the House Majority Leader or the Senate pro- President Pro Tem when when you're talking about changes that they'd like to see. Just want to pro- pro- promote a, a listener comment we had on Twitter. It'd be nice to have rent caps and more affordable housing in my neck of the woods, especially considering how much landlords jack up the prices thanks to having Eastern Connecticut State and Yukon in that neck of the woods. Getting a lot of great participation this hour. Thank you guys all for listening to Where We Live, 888-720-9677, the number to call if you want to join us, or you can make a comment on Twitter, at Where We Live. There's a line in a recent editorial produced by Jackie's CT Insider Outfit, and the line is that the system that we currently have in place for vouchers puts the onus on local government and town governments to provide answers, but they're too eager to look the other way. Ginny, the role of, uh, of, of towns, we talk so much about some of these towns. Uh, Westport is, is a town that, that often comes up here, and in, in recent years, Woodbridge. What's the situation with these towns and, and, and a lack of affordable housing in Connecticut? Yeah, so many towns in Connecticut uh, have local zoning ordinances that make it hard to build multifamily housing in those towns. Uh, The reason that's significant is that rental housing, uh, multifamily housing tends to be more affordable for people with low incomes uh, who might not have the wealth built up to pay a mortgage, uh, to pay a down payment. Um, So there are a couple of pieces of legislation uh, that were likely to see this session that aim to uh, encourage towns to build more affordable housing through sort of statewide land use reforms. I'm going to groove a fastball here at, at, at Jackie and telegraph it so she knows it's coming. This, I feel like, is, is sort of down your wheelhouse. Like, is there one offender or one, like, total town that you've seen over the years because this is the the majority of the coverage that you've done or at least some of the some of the coverage that i've really value some of these you know doing the real journalism thing of going to these town hall meetings and planning and zoning meetings whatever is there an offender that that you're looking at that's a great example or maybe an anecdote yeah i mean one of my former colleagues used to joke that i had like a a folder of troublesome towns on (laughs) of like different (laughs) anecdotes um of just you know some bad actors of of reasons why folks won't um, allow housing affordable housing to move forward um i think sort of the number one um reason that's pointed to is sewer or the environment um and when you look at things like um in woodbridge for example um when you look at things like in woodbridge um the sewer is only in like you know two percent of their their town but you know, I would love to see uh, someone dive into, you know, have they denied um, sewer being sewers being built elsewhere in town? You know, why is the sewer in such a small fraction of that town compared to elsewhere? Is it by design or are there other reasons at play? Um, you know, there's a lot of reasons why um, why t- the makeup of towns look the way they are, um, primarily because of zoning. And, you know, if you require two acres um, like Woodbridge does and most of its town to build a you know two unit three unit without special permission or need special permission to build even a two unit there 
um, you're going to see large McMansions or, um, you know, single family homes to get built. And that's not affordable um, to folks who who maybe want to buy their first starter home or um, build a multifamily so that they're able to have a more sustainable um, rent for themselves um, while they live in the other unit. And so um, there's no shortage of anecdotes of, you know, the reasons people use not to allow places to be built. You know, Fairfield also comes to mind about, um, you know, complaints about a, a property being built in a single family community. And then you do an aerial view and you're like, that's not <laughs> anywhere near the single family homes in town. Um, and so I think, you know, there's a lot of sort of misconceptions about the reasons why you shouldn't allow affordable housing to be built in some communities. But there's also some good reasons why maybe um, affordable housing needs to be um, built closer to high density areas like the fast track in Hartford, um, in the Hartford area or transit oriented development um, for environmental reasons, you know, so not as many people are driving on the roads to get in and congestion and, and sprawl, et cetera. So um, yeah, there's a lot of a nuance to it. Earlier, we mentioned Woodbridge. Both of us had mentioned it. And uh, another work of a, of a former colleague of mine, Camila Vallejo, uh, covered for us on Connecticut Public a few months back. Civil rights group suing Woodbridge for allegedly violating housing laws. You could learn more about that at ctpublic.org. Ginny, how's zoning going to be addressed this legislative session? You did a story on it for The Mirror about three weeks ago. What's the proposal? Yeah, so there are a couple of uh, zoning proposals that we're likely to see this session. One is uh, referred to as fair share. Uh, and under that law, the state would assess the need for affordable housing by region and then divide that need up between towns. So each town would be responsible for planning and zoning for a certain number of affordable units uh, in order to meet the need. The other one, which... Um, Jackie sort of mentioned this issue uh, would be to encourage transit-oriented communities uh, around bus stations and train stations uh, through a variety of incentives, uh, including some financial incentives. Uh, so towns can opt into this and create these communities where you increase residential density near transit stations. Uh, and the folks have talked about the, the benefits of that a bit, Jackie mentioned um, sort of environmental things. It, it also gives people access to public transit and um, many people with lower incomes really rely on public transit because they don't have cars to, to get around. On the books now in Connecticut to get municipalities to do something about affordable housing, here's a lesser known one of the two, 830J. It's a one that compels municipalities to make an affordable housing plan every five years and then there's the one everybody knows about 830g the one that allows courts to override local zoning denials of affordable housing proposals Ginny, that came up in the election between bob stefanowski and ned lamont why did it come up and uh and i guess more 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 to the point who brought it up yeah so uh 8-30g is uh fairly unpopular among many uh, local leaders, particularly in Fairfield County. Uh, and Bob Stefanowski brought that up as sort of a, a campaign issue that he was going to essentially get rid of A-30G um, so that towns didn't need to deal with the appeals process. Um, and 
he didn't really get into specifics on, on how he planned to do this, but he mentioned maybe finding other ways uh, to discuss with towns how they would um, build more affordable housing. Just want to get to one comment on Twitter here. After eight years, our family, this is Pedro on Twitter. Thank you so much for, for joining us today. After eight years, our family finally received a notice for a possible housing availability. But in the end, we had to decline because they expected us to move out of our current place in two weeks. And there could be a possibility of us not even qualifying after doing all the paperwork. This, my friends, is some of the things that people are going through in Connecticut and beyond as people struggle with affordable housing. And Christine, just to button up this whole conversation on housing, veering away from the renter's market, uh, it, it renters market, you alluded to this at the top. I imagine the big question as we get underway here in 2023, the big question on the minds of people that are looking to buy a house in Connecticut is whether 2023 can kind of be the year buyers buy below asking. What do you think? Uh, right now, it's even. Uh, buyers and, and sellers are even at the moment. Um, you know, the general uh, thinking is that the first quarter is still going to be hard. The Fed meets next week, um, and we'll see if that will impact um, interest rates. Um, interest rates hit a peak of over 7% back in September. Um, we've come down from that. We're at 6.15% at the moment. Um, so it is becoming a little bit more affordable, but at the same time, there is not a lot of inventory out there. I mean, you know, uh, single family homes, there's 300 and, uh, 3,600 single family homes here in Connecticut up for sale at the moment. So, um, it is definitely at the moment still a seller's market, but it could flip to a buyer's market by the end of the year. I'm sure there's a lot of people out there in Connecticut and beyond, Christine, that are uh, constantly uh, refreshing Freddie Mac, uh, the website, and trying to see what those 30-year fixed uh, mortgage rates are. You said 6.15% the last one, but I'm sure there's a lot of people out there constantly refreshing that. Yeah, so they come out Thursday at noon. Every Thursday at noon, Freddie Mac releases its uh, mortgage rates. Christine Stewart's going to stick with us for the next segment as we take a little whip around the Capitol. But for now, i got to say bye to good friends here, Ginny Monk and Jackie Rabe Thomas. Thank you guys so much for talking to us about housing today. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, thank you. And participate with us in the next segment by joining the conversation, 888-720-9677, or tweet us at where we live. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Frankie Graziano, and we're hoping by the time we're done with this week's Where We Live, this sort of political conversation we're having on Where We Live, you're going to come out of it with some news you can use. Obviously, when you hear Where We Live, you get news you can use, but I'm talking about up-to-the-date news, like maybe right this second kind of news. So I've asked Christine Stewart to stay on to whip around the Capitol for news updates on the 2023 legislative session. Thanks for doing it, Christine. No problem. Happy to do it. 
All right, and if anybody has a question for Christine or, or myself here, you can hit us up on the phone lines, 888-720-9677, 888-720-WNPR. Or, of course, you know where we are on Facebook. You know where we are at where we live on Twitter. Christine, uh, in the wake of more gun violence here, there were two mass shootings in California, including one at a dance studio in Monterey Park last Saturday. i got to ask you about gun legislation. We talked a couple of weeks ago about something to eliminate assault weapons that were grandfathered in when assault weapons were banned in Connecticut. Any update on that? Yeah, so that is something that Governor Lamont has said uh, on the campaign trail. He said banning assault weapons that were grandfathered in in 2013 following the Sandy Hook shooting um, were something that he wanted to tighten up um, what he called uh, loopholes on. And, and possibly, you know, that that is a direct, you know, Second Amendment supporters will view that as a direct grab at their guns. So anybody who had um, one of these uh, assault um, weapons before uh, the Sandy Hook shooting occurred were able to keep those, but nobody was able to purchase any any new ones in, in the state. And so um he has basically said that he wants to re-examine that and i think that he will be coming out with uh with a proposal soon um to kind of um get rid of what he sees are are loopholes uh in that law so i guess stay tuned to that his his uh agenda on on gun safety is not done yet I don't know if this is a startling number to you, but that's like 80,000, just to put that in context. I think there's like 80,000 yeah. weapons that were grandfathered in. Is there any other gun Are there any other gun legislation that uh, that would that would come up this year or anything to look at? Well, I mean, he's already said that he wants to ban open carry. Um, he wants to invest in community violence intervention programs and he wants to limit handgun purchases to one per month. Um, he also wants to update the registration of of ghost guns. So if you had um, if you had a, a so-called unregistered gun, um, and these are guns that are usually um, usually held by by hobbyists, um, you know, who who put together um, and some antique guns don't have have serial numbers on them. Um, and so he wants to update that and make sure that all of these these guns that don't currently have a serial number are somehow registered with the state. Open carry opponents say that, uh, you know, if you're like an advocate or you do a protest or something like that, they, they get concerned when they, when they, when they do a protest and somebody shows up uh, with a, with a, with sort of the concealed weapon or whatever, you could, you can see the weapon on somebody's hip, something like that. It's, it's kind of an intimidation thing. Hey, just moving on state residents supported early voting on the ballot overwhelmingly in November, but Christine, to make it officially official lawmakers got to pass a bill. What are you hearing about early voting? Yeah, so the new Secretary of State, um, Stephanie Thomas, wants them to to pass a bill that allows for 10 days of early voting, um, which would include um, at, at least one weekend. And that the 10 days of early voting, uh, she wants the legislature to pass this before March 31st so that it can be um, implemented uh, this year. Um, that's a very ambitious schedule. <laughs> um, and and they would need to um, 
get everything, all of their their ducks in a row, so to speak, as as early as possible in order to do this. And I don't know if if that is possible, but ten days of early voting, um, I I don't know where that's going to land. Um, I I think that people. You know, Connecticut's one of only four states without any sort of early voting process at the moment. And so, um, you know, is it is it 10 days? Is it seven days? Is it, you know, five days of early voting? That's appropriate. Um, Recent proposal I heard was 14 days and at least one Saturday and one Sunday. I think that was from uh, ACLU is one other proposal I've heard. Yeah. So there were there were four early voting models for Connecticut. and they ranged from six days to as many as as 14 days. Um, so and and, you know, some would have single um, voting locations and sometimes would have multiple voting locations. But this is also going to be a budgetary issue because mm-hmm. it's going to depend on how mm-hmm. much money the town has in order to open up these polling places and towns pass their budgets in what in May. Yeah, and, um, and if you're, you're paying attention to the calendar like we are, you know that this is a long session. So I guess March 31 is ambitious when you're talking about a budget and having that done uh, by June. And we're watching the clock this hour. we got about a minute to go here, Christine. So just really quickly, let's talk about wine in grocery stores, vino in e supermercati, as I like to say. <laughs> a, a, a lobby has emerged, Christine. Who is it? Well, it's the Connecticut package store owners who are opposed to this proposal, and they have been, you know, uh, for years, um, and they say that it's, you know, it's unfair to them. I mean, they opened up their businesses and opened up their package stores um, under the current guidelines, which don't allow for wine sales in grocery stores. Um, So they believe that they would be, you know, business would be driven away from them. Um, and so they're trying to they were trying to stop their proposal before it even went up for discussion. Um, but they were unsuccessful in doing that. So it will be part of the discussion with the General Law Commission committee this we'll, year. We'll look for wine and grocery stores uh, this session and we'll look out for your great reporting on CT News Junkie. Thank you so much, Christine. I appreciate you for coming on and keeping us posted on what's happening at the Capitol. Thank you. And thank you to the other guests that joined us today, Jackie Rabe Thomas of CT Insider and CT Mirrors, Ginny Monk. Today's show produced by Tess Terrible, our technical director, Kat Pastor. Did you know? Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for tuning in. This is Where We Live. I'm Frankie Graziano.